The messages you see up behind me, today's message, you'll see ultimate enlightenment or unraveled mysteries. And that's from Colossians again. We'll begin in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 in just a minute. But I want you to pay attention in these messages here. See next week, Dr. Hoyle is going to be here. You definitely want to bring people if you can, because he's a very good speaker, very informative, and maybe you remember in years past, I only heard him, I've heard him other places, but here last year, and uh, he does a really good job, so I hope you're able to come. He's also doing a Sunday school thing, so if you want to come to that, 9.30, and then come to church as well. He'll also have resources uh, that he tends to sell very cheaply, uh, so you want to be here for that and get to meet him. Let's jump into the text, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now, that first part, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now, isn't that interesting? And he goes on, he says, and, and my, in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. So Paul is suffering for the sake of the Colossians and the overall church. He is suffering because that's what needs to happen. It's what fulfills God's will. And this might seem like a foreign thing to you, but let me remind you, we already talked about this when we were going through Peter's letters. I want to show you something, uh, and I'll give you a link if you want to know. Here's in one of the newspapers I wrote. Remember when we went through this, and I went through the history of what would Jesus do, and in his steps? Y'all remember that? Well, at the same time, because it saves me a lot of energy, I wrote my weekly newspaper column about that, and it went into one paper, and then it got picked up by other newspapers, and it spread around, and this is one of them. It might surprise you, the what would Jesus do thing. The answer that actually is the launching pad for the whole what would Jesus do movement is found in one of the letters that Peter wrote. So I want to go ahead and give you that, First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. You see it up behind me. For to this you have been called, that's you, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. You're called to suffer. Did you know that? Maybe you did. It's reminding you. You are called to suffer. Christians, for the most part, what I've experienced is a lot of us tend to whine when we suffer. And it's like we forget. We're supposed to. We are supposed to suffer. It's not like we're supposed to purposely go out of our way to make ourselves suffer. And we're definitely not supposed to go out of our way to make other people suffer. But it's just part of the Christian life. It's not easy. It's hard. When you commit to, the, to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you're committing to a standard that is not like other people's. And when you start with your standards, when you try to live it out in ordinary, everyday life, it could be like this. Maybe you decide, I, I need to be in church on a regular basis. I know I'm preaching to the crowd. You're here. But maybe you decide that. And it's like, I don't want to miss. 
I know this is good for me. And the next thing you know, the people that you already know, sometimes even family, will resist when you say, no, I don't want to do that Sunday morning because I'm going I'm to attend church. And then you'll get pushed back from friends and family. Can't you just miss this one time? You might even say, I, I don't want to do that Saturday. It sounds like it's going to go late. I want to be ready for church on Sunday morning because it's important to me. And they're going to be thinking, and might even say it, what are you, in some sort of cult or something? Why do you care so much about being in church? Why do you have to go to bed at a decent time on Saturday night? What difference does that make? People will criticize. People will not understand. And let me tell you, just because they're criticizing and not understanding, that doesn't fall in the category of suffering. That's just people not liking what you're choosing to do. Suffering is when you actually have to struggle through life because of your faith. For the glory of God, you choose to suffer. It's part of it. It's not something that we have embraced very well in these modern times. We have this country we're praying for, Ukraine, that is over 70% Christian. And and you, you think this has nothing to do with that? Of course it has something to do with that. It's a very Christian nation. And right now, they're under attack. Us, we get our feelings hurt if somebody just says something that we don't like. And we think we're suffering. We don't even go out of our way very much anymore to even advance the kingdom. I mean, it's inconvenient when somebody asks us, hey, I'd be in church, but I don't have a ride. Well, complicates my morning, you know. I mean, I have this routine. I have breakfast, and I got to do this, and I got to do that. We have excuses, and we don't even want to barely suffer a little for the cause of the kingdom. We don't, we don't want to get our lives disrupted. And Paul reminds us, then Peter, I just gave you a passage out of Peter, reminds us, we can go back to Paul's in a minute, that, well, we can go back to it now if you want. He rejoices that he's suffering, not just for the Colossian church, but for the whole church. It's, it's actually what completes the plan of Christ. Without our suffering, the plan is lacking. We have to suffer to demonstrate that we are genuine. We don't, like I said, we don't make ourselves suffer. We don't make other people suffer. It's just part of it. <clears throat> so don't get in the habit of trying to avoid a little bit of suffering. Let's put selflessness above selfishness. So here, Paul is rejoicing that he's suffering. Now remember where he is. He's in prison. And he's telling the Colossian church that is clearly upset that he's in prison, I rejoice that I'm suffering because this is furthering the gospel. And then he says a little bit more. He says he's a servant. That's what the word minister is, diakonos. Same word for deacon. Same, it's associated with actually slavery. Of which I become a servant according 
to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. So God has allocated this as part of his stewardship. This is, Paul has to dispense some things for God's sake. And this is what it is. From God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So Paul is going to make this fully known. Bible students, if you struggle with 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll go over that, the Lord willing, one of these days, where it talks about then I will be fully known. It's talking about the same thing. Connect the dots and you'll understand things a whole lot better. God's word is to be fully known. Now, what is this? We're back to another big word. I'm going to give you, I'm going to make it even longer. Epistemological beginnings of faith. You see this by Paul Butler. He was a mentor of mine, and I miss him. I used to talk to him on the phone long after I was done with my first undergraduate seminary, and I miss those phone calls. He's a very godly man. This particular document called the Epistemological Beginnings of Faith, I have two copies in the lobby. Take one if you want. It's 21 pages. So it's like a little book. It's a lot of reading. If you don't want to take that and you don't want a digital copy, I'll send it. Just give me your email. I'll I'll be glad to send it to you. It's good reading. Those men who've been part of our men's breakfast and you have those men's notebook, this is a good thing to put in there. Add it to your list. But I want to talk to you about the epistemological beginnings of faith. In particular, I want to talk to you about epistemology. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. How do, how do we know what knowledge is? What is knowledge? How do we know what we know? I want to remind you, and I'm, some of you, this is first-time information, but Thursday night, March 17th, 6 to 7.30, it's the same time as Purim, but the next night. If you have time, I plan to be here to teach our first uh, 1.0 class. It's kind of like some of you have been through this kind of thing before. It's just basically basic stuff. But I want to tell you about that um, in a minute, a little bit more. You'll see it up behind me in case you didn't write it down. But this epistemological beginning of faith or epistemology of it in and of itself would fall into the category of 2.0 stuff. 2.0 is the most exciting of all of the pieces that we're going to do here. 3.0 is the next step, and then 4.0 is obviously the next. But I want to explain to you what kind of in a nutshell we're doing. On Thursday, March 17th, we have to do this one first, 6 to 7.30, we'll do our first CKCC 1.0. This is for people who are not Christians yet, or they're new to this church, and since we've never done this, I invite all of you. You are welcome to come. We'll have more times to take this. This will be our first. Just basic stuff, and it's fun. The 2.0, though, is more fun. It's the most fun of all because it's the resourcing one. It's the one where I show you how you can get documents like the epistemological beginnings of faith, how you can get resources that you don't know you have accessible to you. I will make sure you're aware of how to get these. And and anything else we do here that's kind of resourcing God's people, like Dr. Hoyle that's coming next week, that would be like a two-point, we'd call it 2.1. Any of those things would be 2.1. 
that's kind of cool. And what we're doing on Wednesdays for the midweek study, that would be 2.1. It's very good stuff. You should jump in and get engaged if you're not. But I must tell you, those three, those other three, you'll see a square go behind it. Those are all to be determined. We don't have dates for those yet, but we'll get to that. Okay. Let's look at the text again. He wants, because he wants to fulfill God's word, he wants to be good in dispensing what he's supposed to dispense so that God's word can be fully known. This is important. Next verse. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. The saints are just Christians. That's us. If you are serving Christ, you're a Christian. So this this God's word that needs to be fully known was a mystery. It was hidden for ages, for so long. If you start reading in Genesis and you go all the way through into the New Testament, you discover it's mysterious. This whole, that God has this plan that he's going to, he's got a way to redeem us. And there's going to be a deliverer greater than Moses, greater than Elijah. And he comes in the flesh in the form of Jesus. The mystery is no longer a mystery. It's been revealed, but there's still mysterious pieces to it. It's one of those things you just simply cannot, you cannot convey to a non-believer. Not very well. You can give a little bit. You can demonstrate in, in your life some of what it has. It's that feeling when you, when you come into the parking lot and you're not letting distractions get you. Because if you come into the parking lot and you get out of your car and you're just still tossing those things around in your head because the devil's got a hold of your mind for a moment, you won't, you won't feel this. But there's been times when you haven't done that. And you get out of your car and you come into the parking lot and it's like there's this inside of you, it feels good. Because you can tell. It's nothing to do with the pavement. It's nothing to do with this building itself. It's what you have experienced on this pavement and in this building. When God's got a hold of your heart and your mind and you know it's good and you come and you're not distracted, it's going to be good again. And and when you leave, that same thing. Even if during the week you just get lost and you have to turn around in the parking lot, it's like, this is good. Stuff that happens here is good. I know because I experienced it and a non-believer cannot comprehend that. Don't even understand it when they see it in you. But this is a mysterious thing. It's been revealed to you, to Christians. I want to read the next verse. The mystery, actually, I want to read the same verse again. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. I want to bring up a word to you, and I I sure wish I had the time. Someday I will get to talk to you about some experiences that I've had with a cult. And you can Google it. You can find there's people that hate me out there, and those people are associated with a cult. And I got to be directly involved in helping a whole bunch of them get out of that cult. 
But this particular cult, like most, claimed to have enlightenment. That's the word I want you to think about. They, they think they have this knowledge. And when you study the book of John, if you read commentaries, you've got to be careful what you pick up. Because there are people that claim Christ as their Lord and Savior that write commentaries on the book of John that say John wrote his gospel to fight against Gnosticism. And the problem with that is, at that particular time in history, what we had was something that was not identified as Gnosticism yet. Later, it would be identified as incipient Gnosticism. Why do you care? Why do you care about that? Because if you're reading a commentary that's telling you John wrote this to combat Gnosticism that didn't historically exist yet, what they're really saying, John didn't write it. Because Gnosticism didn't exist yet. So if whoever wrote it wrote it to combat Gnosticism, well then, it was somebody other than John, and it was simply not inspired It was just something that Gnosticism was a thing and Christianity was combating it, so somebody needed to write against Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, modern Gnosticism, is basically almost every major cult you know of today that's considered New Age. That's a modern Gnostic cult. That's what it is. And this says that we are supposed to understand this knowledge that God has revealed to Christians. He didn't reveal it to some cult. And this idea of enlightenment, you need to think of when you see this word, think of a light bulb. That's what kind of like enlightenment is. Like when you're trying to figure something out, maybe it's a, a mathematical equation and you can't figure it out and you can't figure it out and you can't figure it out. People try to teach you. School teacher tries to teach you. Parents try to teach you. A mentor tries to teach you. And finally one day... Aha, now I get it. Light bulb. Does that make sense? You're troubleshooting a problem. You can't figure it out. You can't figure it out. You can't figure it out. Aha, light bulb. This is talking about life. Life on earth. Your life, my life. God has revealed to us. He has revealed a mystery that's been hidden for the ages And if we know Jesus, it's not a mystery to us anymore. Light bulb. Everything makes sense now. Things that I was confused about before, I'm not confused anymore when it comes to life in general because Jesus has made it all come together. Because if you remember, just a couple weeks ago, we learned all things are held together by him. He sustains it all. And now it begins to make sense. Whereas before we knew him, It didn't make sense. We thought we understood, but until we knew Christ, we really didn't. Let me show you something. Now, the the men, we already did some logical reasoning. We didn't do this. So I'm going to give you a little bit of something. This is called inductive reasoning. Now, if you remember in the Sherlock Holmes stuff, remember what he said to Watson? When, when Watson's like, how did you figure that out? You know, because the light bulb went off. How did you do that? And he says, simple deduction, my dear Watson. Remember that? Wrong. I mean, it makes for good fiction. But what 
Sherlock Holmes was actually doing was inductive reasoning, not deductive reasoning. Let me show you. So what you do in inductive reasoning is you gather the facts. So here we have facts. When you take the facts, then you, once you've got them all, then you gather them together and kind of assimilate, and you end up with a derived truth. You've seen Sherlock Holmes movies if you didn't read the books. This is what he does, right? Gather the facts, come up with a derived truth. Now you have a conclusion. That's inductive reasoning, not deductive reasoning. Deductive reasoning is when you have a whole bunch of derived or assumed truths and you apply it to certain situations. That's deductive. It's what teachers do. It's what preachers often do. You know, here are the five points because I know. You're not gathering the facts. You're dispensing them. It's different. So inductive reasoning is what we want to be doing if we're going to have a light bulb go off. And what happens is, as we come to know Jesus, all things come together by the sustainer of the universe, and it all makes sense, and the light bulb, go, light bulb goes off. We've gathered the facts, and now it's been revealed to us. The mystery is no more. Jesus is very tangible and very real. And there are people that like to argue. And that's why it's good to hear Dr. Hoyle, because Dr. Hoyle, he will destroy some arguments based on science. We get caught up in some very bad, bad stuff. And I'm going to talk to you. We're going to move on in a minute. We're going to talk about some arguments that seem reasonable, but they're not. But we've been given a revelation of the mystery by knowing Jesus Christ. Moving along in the text. To them, as Christians, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, that's something that the world just simply cannot understand, that this, this hope of glory, this glorious day that will come someday, we live with this hope. We can suffer because we know this isn't the end, that life on earth sometimes does feel like hell, more like hell than heaven, except when we're in church and when we're with our Christian Friends, we, we have tastes of heaven that are just wonderful. And we have this hope of glory that we know because it's been revealed to us. God made sure that not only the Jews know about it, even the Gentiles know about it. We're going to talk a little bit more about the distinction in Jews and Gentiles. And we're going to talk about baptism in partic particular in a couple of weeks and what Paul says about it in Colossians. So you might want to Bring your pencils and papers so we can kind of discover what God wants to teach us with that. We'll continue on in the text. Him, meaning Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We just learned that it is Christ who strengthens us to get us through these sufferings, these hard times. 
And we must warn people because if you don't know Christ, you have a horrible destiny. That is a very real and tangible reality, and we know this. It's not a mystery anymore to us. But when we start warning people, some people don't want to hear it. They don't like it. But Paul has an obligation to ensure that the people with whom he communicates, including us through the Scripture that was inspired by God, he wants to ensure that we grow up, spiritually speaking. That's why he says the word mature. He wants to present everyone mature in Christ, not spiritual babies. It continues into chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's a lot to peel back here, so we'll do it as quickly as we can here. He wants us to be very knowledgeable of the reason why he's struggling. And, and what, why is he going through all this suffering? And, he, and he's wanting to do it not just for the Colossians, but for the church in, in general. But he mentions Laodicea. Does this name sound familiar to you? Yeah. Uh, let me remind you of the proximity of where Paul is in relationship to where the Colossians are. So you'll see in a map behind me, uh, I have a little pointer so I can, if you have trouble seeing. It's a smaller map. I'll have a bigger one in a minute. So here is Rome. That's where Paul is. And here is Colossae right there. And we have it blown up up here so you can see Laodicea and Colossae. They're very close together, but Paul is a long ways from them. So if we can go to the next map, you'll see a little bit easier. You see some very familiar other names here, including Ephesus. We just um, went through, through Ephesians. Here's Colossae. And here is Laodicea, so boom, boom. They're very, very close together. wanted you to see that so that you would understand that these, these two congregations, they interact with each other, they know each other, and Paul is especially wanting them to know, the, the Galatians to know, that he's struggling for them too. And here's why. So let's go back to the text that we just read. I think that's the next slide. Is it? Oh, no, this is good. This is even better. I want to give you some background on Laodicea. So let's read this in Revelation 2, 2 and following. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, hold on a second. I've read several commentaries on Revelation that try to beat up the Laodicean church because they claim that the Laodiceans were too focused on doctrine. See, because they, 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 they fell and they, fors they had forsaken their first love. And so these commentaries will go on and on about how this church had become so legalistic. They had they identified false 
teachers, they had false apostles, they, they were really good about identifying false doctrine, they, they stood up for the truth, they were really good about that, and they focused on it too much and lost their focus. That is not what the scripture says at all. I just read it to you. He said, this is what you're doing right. He didn't say they were doing it wrong. What they did wrong was have forsaken their first love. And you, you know this. I, found, I haven't found any commentary that says anything other than that's Jesus. You are supposed to be passionately in love with Jesus who loved you so much that he gave his life for you. They had forsaken their first love, their passion for Christ. So, yes, they had the doctrine stuff. They had it all, you know, can't teach that. That's not true. Must teach this. It's true. Throw out the false doctrine. These false apostles that claim they're apostles, we can't have them teaching because they're false. They stood up for what's right, but they had forsaken their first love. And we can do that as a church. You could, you could be very good at these things. But if it's not coming from a love of Jesus, you've got it, you got it wrong. You got the first part right, but your motivation should be from the love of Jesus. We can't teach this. Why? It doesn't please our Lord. Does that make sense? They had forsaken their first love. They used to be passionate. Now, I, I want you to exercise your brains for just a minute, because if you'll remember... Colossians was written around 60 A.D., approximately, a little bit after that. And Revelation is written around 90 to 95 A.D. So 30 years later is when this is happening. So Paul wrote this letter to the Colossian church, wanted them to share the information with the Laodicean church. I'm suffering for your sake, too. I'm trying to teach you some things. This mystery, you need to hang on to some truths. And the Laodicean church did not. They had, they had received word from Paul. You need to hang on to this. And they let go. So don't for a minute think it can't happen to one of us or even all of us. Because we're reading through Colossians right now, just like the Laodicean church did. They read the letter too. And they failed. In, in a mere 30 years, they lost their passion. The love of Christ was not where it once was with them. In fact, it was dangerous. Let's read the rest of what it says in Revelation 2 about the Laodicean church. Remember, therefore... From where you have fallen. Repent, which means change your mind. You're thinking wrong. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Well, some big consequences there. Yet this you have. It's another good thing they do. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. God hates this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That means you're supposed to listen too. I'm supposed to listen too. This is not just for the Laodiceans. It's not just for the people that take John's letter around and make sure it's delivered. It's not just for the first century Christians. You're supposed to hear this. I'm supposed to hear this. To the one who conquers, I will grant 
to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What about the one who doesn't? You do get the consequences, don't you? Removing a lampstand is a kind of a big deal, don't you think? So the Laodicean church did get the thing about the Nicolaitans wrong. What's that? What is that? The Nicolaitans are the first mentioned denomination in the Bible. We don't know a whole lot about them except for they claim to follow Nicholas. We presume it's the Nicholas mentioned before in Scripture, but we don't know. Whatever the case, it plays out like this in modern, in modern language. Oh, you're a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. What kind? Well, I'm a Methodist Christian. Oh, yeah? Well, I'm a Baptist Christian. Oh, yeah? Well, I'm a Presbyterian Christian. What does that do? It divides us. Remember the math? When you learn math, and maybe you don't remember. You know how to turn a fraction into a decimal? You have to take the denominator and divide it into the numerator. Because the denominator divides. That's how you remember that. Denominations divide. Don't fall into that trap. Somebody might ask you, so you attend church? What, what kind of church is it? Don't fall into the trap of going, well, it's kind of like Baptist, but then maybe more like um, uh, the, uh, might be more like the Methodist. Might, might be, it's not really like the Catholics, but maybe more like the Episcopalian at time, but more modern, kind of like the Church of God Anderson. You go through these denominational things to describe us, and we are not a denomination. No, we're not. And we might behave like one sometimes. Shame on us when we do. We are not a denomination. We have no headquarters somewhere telling us how to think. We, we refuse. We choose to lift up the word of God unadulterated and just believe it. That's it. So you don't have to go down that path of, well, it's kind of like this and kind of like that and it's kind of like this. No. What kind of Christian are you? We kind that's in here. Try. We just want to follow this. Well, there's all kinds. You know, today, there's all kinds of interpretations. I mean, how do you know which one's right? I, you know what? I say, I'm not smart enough to give you my interpretation. I just choose to believe this. This works. How about that? Don't need an interpretation. Just read it and believe it. Are we good? Well, that's what I think. In the Laodicean church, they were pretty good about not letting this come into their church. Well, I followed Nicholas. So? I follow Jesus. <laughs> so there. Simple Christian. Okay. Lost my track of where I was. Yeah, so we're going to go back to uh, Colossians on the next slide. From where we just read. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. There's more here. I said that we needed to peel back quickly. So, he, notice what Paul does here. This is special. We can learn from this. In a world where it is almost weird to see somebody face-to-face, because -face, it's mask-to-mask, or screen-to-screen. It's, it's, a, it's a weird world that we live in now, and we have, we have almost obliterated that personal touch of face-to-face -face communication. And it's been very difficult. It's taken its toll on our children and on us. 
And, it, and it's almost weird now when I'm, <laughs> I don't know what it's going to be like when inside a prison they decide you don't have to wear masks anymore. It's, I, I think I'm going to be like, what are you doing looking at me with your whole face? <laughs> I'm, I'm not used to that, you know. But I can tell you, Paul is on to something. I've learned this. So those of you who don't know, I just started the whole you know, official chaplain of Washington State a month before I came here. I, I'm new at it. I mean, yeah, I mean, I started a chaplaincy back in 1987, but there's a big gap between when I was doing it. And so I'm new at being a Washington State chaplain. I am. Since I didn't know what to do, I thought I would take a, a Christian principle. And by the way, there are people with whom I work and people that I've met in the Department of Corrections who listen to, they'll listen to this message online. <laughs> right about the time they hear this, they'll be thinking, oh, he's talking about me. <laughs> but I can tell you, so, so however you hear this message, like right now you're hearing it, Paul is onto something. I didn't know what I was doing as a new chaplain coming in, but I know this principle of face-to-face -face is so much more effective than over the phone or with a screen. So much more effective if you can be right in the presence of another individual. Let me tell you how this works. Here's how I know it works. So I thought I would just try it. I'm a new chaplain coming into a new facility, and everybody there knows this is the new chaplain. They know very little about me, and they know I know very little about being a chaplain. So you can expect that they think, oh, he'll learn, oh, he'll learn, he doesn't know anything, he'll learn. But I can tell you this, I know it's a whole lot easier to tell me no if I call and ask over the phone or if I send an email or if we're on video screens. But if I go straight to your office and I sit down and say, hey, can we do this? It's very hard to tell me no. Because when we're face-to-face, -face, we make a connection, a human connection that is powerful. And people of God, if you can remember, Paul is on to something. I, I, as a new chaplain, I got told yes on so many things. It's crazy how many things. As far as I know, during this whole COVID thing, I was the only chaplain baptizing people in the state. Because I got told yes, finally, after multiple face-to-face. <laughs> I got told yes on a lot of things. And let me tell you something. If you want to be effective in trying to reach other people for the sake of Jesus, face-to-face -face is very good. And Paul is saying, I can't do that right now. I'm in jail. <laughs> so he, he says he wants to lift up those who haven't even seen him face-to-face. -face, and those that are in Laodicea. He wants them to be encouraged that he's, he's struggling on purpose. That he's, he's okay with going through what he's going through. And he wants to be face-to-face. -face. That's another thing Paul's on to. Telling somebody that you haven't seen in a while, that you want to see him face-to-face. -face. You talk to somebody on the phone, it's not as good as face-to-face. -face, but you know what? You can make it almost happen when you say something like, I miss you. You ever try that? You know what that does to the person on the other end? I can make some gulp sometimes. Makes them think, wow, this person actually cares. It's that thought of face-to-face. -face. 
that makes people bond a little bit more. And you can do this in emails. You can do this in text. You can do this over the phone and with a video screen like Paul did in simple inspired scripture. Inspired scripture when the Colossians get the letter and the, and the Laodiceans get the letter and we get the letter, we get this feeling that God wants a personal touch. Do you feel that? And he wants us to be encouraged. That's what he's saying here. Being knit together, we're supposed to have this tight bond in love. There you go. See, I don't know if your mind just went there, but it should. Paul is trying to compel the Colossians, the Laodiceans, and us to be tightly knit together in the bond of love. What love? The love of Jesus. We love Jesus first. We love him. Remember the two commandments, the two greatest, love God, love others. Love of Jesus is the primary, and that is supposed to bond us together, that love of Jesus that we emulate. And the Laodicean church had forsaken it only 30 years later. Christians, don't let that happen to you. It can happen. Happen to the Laodiceans. Don't let it happen to you. Remember that first love. Go back to that church camp experience where you were on a spiritual high. Go back to that time when you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you wanted to tell everybody because you knew what it was like to be saved. Don't you still? Don't forsake that love. Get that passion back. And when you get that back, you can't help but make the most of the opportunity when somebody in front of you is sharing their sad story. You're not just going to leave it as how can I help you? You, you need to tell them things come together when you know Jesus. You've been through some hard times too, and the only way you can get through it is by knowing Jesus. Don't miss that opportunity that God just drops in your lap, and you will not miss it if you still have that passion for Jesus. That's what this is saying. He wants us to have these riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Others need to know this, which is Christ. And look what it says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We live in a world chock full of information. It's everywhere. Just had a family member yesterday talk to me about a friend she knows everything about the Ukraine. I mean, she's telling me everything about the Ukraine. And I said, well, we know her. She stays on her phone all the time Googling everything. And Google doesn't always tell the truth. So she doesn't know everything about the Ukraine. Google doesn't know everything about the Ukraine. So don't buy into the information. Just because there's information doesn't mean it's knowledge. You should study what that is, epistemology or wisdom. Yeah, 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 I know. I know the grandkids can operate the electronic equipment better than the rest of us. But do they know the mystery that is Jesus revealed? See, that's where the wisdom and the real substantial knowledge that they need is. And they're not going to find that on Google. 
Paul had no idea there was going to be an internet or Google, but God knew, and he inspired these wonderful words that would guide us through these weird times. Now, I want you to take a look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. <laughs> now, you need to know what this means, because we throw these words around a lot today. You hear, well, that's plausible. Well, that's plausible. I sound smart if I say those words. That's plausible. Let me tell you the way this is intended and the way it was used for many years and the way it still should be used, in my personal opinion. Plausible means superficially reasonable. So if you say plausible, what it always was used before was, and what it means here is when, when Paul says, don't, I don't want anybody to delude you with plausible arguments, superficial, superficially rational or reasonable arguments. So they, they seem reasonable on the surface, but they're not reasonable. One of the most trendy things, it's been going on for, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years, maybe getting really trendy. In fact, one of my favorite motivational writers and speakers is, uh, I think his name is Simon Sinnott. I don't know how you say it. That's why I said I think his name is. You all know who that is? You heard of him? He's good. Not a Christian, but he's good. The problem is he gets off the rails a lot. He's got a lot of good things to say. But people make this presentation in the, in the field of study that's very trendy today to act like you know what you're talking about and say words when you really know nothing about what you're talking about. Is the field of study is called anthropology. Now, it's a new thing. If you go to the university, you're going to have a class on anthropology, study of man. And it's not going to take you to the Bible and tell you that God created Adam and Eve and then it went from there. No, it's going to take you much further back than that accordingly. But how can you go back? How can you go back further than that? Because if God created, there it is. It just got created. Well, they want to take you to a, a fictional fantasy fairy tale of some kind of explosion that happened in a non-universe that didn't exist yet, but there was some matter and it exploded and who caused the explosion? We don't know, but there was an explosion, and there was no creation. It all just blew up, you know. How many people have successfully done that? Because I, I have a sickness, I'll admit to you, when I drive by and see somebody's car in a field, I don't even care what kind of car it is. I look at it like, no, it needs help. I like cars too much, and I don't want them broken down in a field. I want it fixed. I like them. I have a sickness. What if I just took some dynamite and blew up one here and there? At some point in time, could I get like um, a Mercedes like the Hamiltons have? Or could I get a Porsche? I mean, if I, just keep, if I blow up enough of them, will there be, can I get, could I just even get a moped? There is no reasonableness to blowing something up and it creating order. It doesn't work. Anywhere. But we're supposed to believe that humans just happened, and there's no creator. But here's the, one of the most absurd things, and we get caught up in it. And I should tell you this, though. In New York, there is a place called the Museum of Natural History. You know of this place. There is a figure 
that's in a encased glass thing. Well, it's like a rectangle, so you can't touch it. Neanderthal. Some of you have got on, like some of these applications, and I'm on it. Stephanie's on it. It's a uh, 23andMe is one of ours. I'm on two actually. A DNA things, and it's like it tells you how much Neanderthal is in you. How much DNA? How much Neanderthal DNA do you have? Here's a weird thing about that. I don't know if it's still there, uh, but 20 years ago, there used to be, so you got the history of Neanderthal, it's all right there, and you read about it on a plaque in front of the Neanderthal, but if you turn to the right and then look on that side of Neanderthal, there is a piece of paper on a podium, and that piece of paper says that recent discoveries have proven that Neanderthal was nothing more than modern man with arthritis. Do you ever hear that? No, no. We open up our phone and look at an app and go, oh, I've got Neanderthal DNA. So it's just a man with arthritis. We don't even know who he was. He was not a prehistoric man. (laughs) But anthropologists keep the lies going. And they do it this way, and it's very convincing. They'll be talking and say, okay, so this kind of behavior that we do now came from the days when we used to be gatherers and hunters and You know, they talk like that. How do you know? Is that, did did they write it down? Somebody take a picture? Is it on video? How do you know? No, because according to them, there was nobody there writing anything down. So where's the science? It's all theory. Well, you see, back then, the hunter would go do this and go do that and go, how do you know? You weren't there. And they didn't write it down. There's no picture books even. How do you know that's what they did? You don't know. So an anthropologist, um, somebody with a doctor's degree, stands at a university at a podium and lectures a class and says, back then cavemen did this and cave women did that. We know this because that's what we know because we made it up in our heads. They don't say that part. They just... They write it down, it gets printed in books, and, and then, then people like Simon Sinek goes on to explain some of our modern behaviors are based on, and it's so weird because it's, it's good stuff. I mean, you, you read the good stuff about how we can improve our behaviors, but then when you start talking about the nonsense that people just made up and they presented as fact, that's not science. But the kids in universities eat it up like it's just facts. And they'll write their own books, and they'll, they'll allude to or refer to, yes, when we're hunters and gatherers, stop. God created Adam and Eve. Start there. That's when mankind started. You want to know anthropology? How about you read from the author of life? How about that? And quit trying to make stuff up. I'm not buying it. It's, it's plausible argument. So if you have somebody doing this, it's a plausible argument. In other words, I'm telling you, you're not very reasonable. (laughs) You're superficially reasonable. It sounds reasonable, but it's not fact. Paul doesn't want us to be deluded with plausible arguments. And people will try this. He wants us to understand that if you want to understand the deepest mysteries of life, get to know Jesus, who is the sustainer of all things. Then it's no longer a plausible argument, 
we got the facts. We start with the creator of the universe and go from there. We don't have to deal with superficially reasonable arguments. Okay. I want to read to you the last verse in our text, verse 5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. What a way to wrap up our text for today. I mean, he's not wrapping up the book. He's wrapping, we're just stopping here. But it's a good way to wrap it up. He's saying once again, I, I can't give you that personal touch, but I'm with you in spirit. If I could be with you, I would be with you. Use that kind of language when you communicate with other people. It's, it's a wonderful encouragement to other people to hear you talk like that. And he's rejoicing to see your good order. So he's getting reports that they have good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, I want to take you to a place, so just quickly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. This is the NIV. It says, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the creations of the Lord's people. You see, God doesn't want us to have chaos. He's a God of order. That's why the universe operates in an orderly fashion. And he wants things like that in the churches. He wants, this is what this is in context, 1 Corinthians 14. He's talking about how we conduct ourselves in our worship. When we come together and worship, he wants order. I am not a fan of a disorderly worship service. I'm not a fan. I'm not even a fan. I don't even think we should open it up to the floor for discussion. I don't think we should do that at all, ever. Not in worship. Other times, Bible studies, small groups, because you never know when you're going to have a visitor in the back of the room who wants to give us a plausible argument. We want to worship God. We don't want to deter from that. So I think it's a very good idea to have order. Paul commends the Colossian church in that they have order. Can we look again at that final verse that I read to you that wraps up our text today? He doesn't just commend them on their order. He also commends them on their firmness of their faith in Christ, which we know that later Laodiceans aren't so firm. But he's commending them. He's wrapping it up. And I want you to take this as a word of encouragement. I see in you, I know most of you well enough to say you have a firm faith. So I could say this to you. That's wonderful. Keep it up. Why would God inspire Paul to say, I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ unless he's wanting to encourage them to continue. And if that's the case, is there a possibility that we may lose our stability in our faith? It's happening. Let me give you some... I prayed about it earlier. It's, this is something that's bothering me tremendously. So we are... Which, if you don't know this, you're part of a a church that has a rich history in what is known as the Restoration Movement. It's just churches that have decided, we just want to follow the Bible and restore the church to this. We're never going to say we're perfect, but we want to get 
close to the New Testament church. Be as much like it as possible. Restore the church to New Testament Christianity. That's all that means. And we have Bible colleges that we support, like Boise Bible College. For many years, Nebraska Christian College was a very solid one of our colleges. I had a four-year scholarship to Nebraska Christian College, and I didn't use it, but I did. In the past couple years, Nebraska Christian College has closed its doors, no longer training people for ministry. For many years, Cincinnati Christian University was one of the most solid of our seminaries, even awarding master's degrees. Cincinnati Christian University in the past couple years has closed its doors. I just got word this week, probably our most prominent of our uh, graduate programs, Lincoln Christian University, they're not closing their doors, but they're having to take actions just to survive. And they may too be next. Three of our colleges that are training preachers are going through this. This this is heavy for me. No wonder churches are struggling finding pastors. (laughs) We definitely need to be lifting up Boise Bible College. People's faith is not what it once was in this country. Churches are closing their doors faster than we're opening new ones. Pastors are getting out of the ministry much faster than new ones are entering into training to be pastors. Christians, we can do something about this. We keep our faith. We do not forsake our first love. We get passionate about Jesus and people will come to know him. And his church will prevail. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for allowing us to gather as believers. I thank you, Lord, for the people here that have demonstrated a solid faith. May they preserve that. Teach me to be your leader in these times. Use the elders here as leaders in these times. God, I ask that you would help us as a church, help us to be how you want us to be, and may light bulbs go off in more people's heads as they are enlightened with the truth that is Jesus, and may this happen because of our love for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.